It's the criminal code of the underworld and a sacred vow of silence. But what happens when a criminal turns witness against his own? MCD presents Omerta, a live show with me, Nicola Talent, in association with Crime World on April 27th in the Olympia Theatre Dublin. Tickets on sale now at ticketmaster.ie. He says directly, I was fearful that if I spoke to the guardie, told him this stuff, this would get back to Mr. Hutch. Saying directly that there was ties between members of Garda Siakona and Jerry Hutch, and it wasn't safe for him to do so. It feels like he's fighting for his reputation a lot of the time. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Jonathan Dowdall said he wanted to make stories more beefy for Jerry the Monk Hutch and was only trying to impress him with tales of bomb-making, ordering a shootout at his Uncle Jimmy's house and pointing out possible kidnap opportunities to him on their doomed trip north. On his third day in the witness box, he also told the special criminal court that he was disgusted with himself from the audio recordings taken on a secret bug in his car, saying that none of what he said was true and that he just talked too much when there was uncomfortable silences and filled it with both bravado and pub talk. Today, myself and Niall Donald discuss the Regency trial and what the witness will say next. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Everybody remembers that day for a different reason, don't they? That Saturday after the Regency Hotel. I think us in the Sunday world, it was a panicky. It was one of those, it was a news day. Obviously, this tragedy had happened. David Byrne had been murdered. We were on the beat. We had a photograph which has been brought up again and again. And I think actually in the book I wrote about Tash of the Clans, I described it as one of those sort of uh, yeah, sliding a, doors moments when that picture was taken. Yeah, it was just a once in a lifetime shot. Obviously, it's everybody probably listening now knows what it looks like. It's the guy known as Flat Cap Kevin Murray and a man in drag exiting the, the Regency Hotel, carrying handguns. Um, but yeah, it came up again today. Um, we were obviously, Jonathan Dowdle was being questioned um, about his evidence. The, the, the defence are really honing in on two things, which we've discussed as well. One of them is um, an alleged meeting between Jerry Hutch and the Dowdles when he hand, Jerry Hutch is alleged to have handed over a key card to the Regency Hotel. And the second one... Um, a meeting, an alleged meeting between Jonathan Dowdle and Jerry Hutch. In he today, he said again it was Sunday or it was Monday or no. He actually started and he said it was either Saturday or Monday. And yeah. Brendan Graham hopped on that and said what day? Because yeah. of course they discussed um, the Sunday front World. page of the Sunday World, which that photograph was used on. Now we'll just go back a little bit to the fifth, the sixth of February, twenty sixteen. And, of course, this was an absolutely massive, big news story, no matter what. We had been writing for a long time that the Kinnahans were, you know, the, that the gang itself was imploding, that they were gone to war. Obviously, Gary Hutch had been murdered. Um, and our photographer and journalist had been out at the Regency 
because there was a boxing way in as we've gone over again and again and Daniel Kinnan was going to be there, was due to be there and we wanted to see who was there and who wasn't really. That was ultimately the goal of it because you wanted to see on which side and really who had remained on the Hutch side more than anything because very few of the Kinnahan crew attended Gary Hutch's funeral. There was very few of them there to carry his coffin and it was clear that this divide was, you know, very, very stark. So... The photograph was taken and by the Saturday morning and on a Sunday newspaper, Saturday is the busiest day of the week. You're planning the pages, you're working out what the splash is, what the headlines are, where everything's going to go. And obviously there was only one wipeout that day and it was going to be the picture. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the Herald had published the pictures that they had taken. They were also there at the way in, which were the, the pictures of the guys dressed as ERU officers. Um but it was a very tense moment because obviously you're 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 journalists. It's about reporting the news. Um, <clears throat> the other obvious reality was that there was a murder taking place. That's not ever to be trivialised. Um, you know the job. Our job is to report the news, but nor do we want to impede investigations. I mean that's certainly not our job either. And um, there was other issues. Um, <clears throat> obviously there were. Gunmen on the loose, um, and the Gardaí were trying to track who they were. And you know, we really at that point, there was everybody knew there was gonna something was gonna happen as a result of what had happened in the Regency. So it really did feel on a knife edge. Mm. Um, but ultimately, I think while we were trying to identify who was in the picture, all the journalists and that were on the beat, including our northern office, they were out and about trying to find out who eventually would be identified as Kevin Murray, who this man, flat cap, was carrying the gun, running away. And um, we were just, certainly not we, because we were lowly journalists at the time, but the uh, editors... I was, I was the news editor, not, not, not as lowly as... Well, the editors were certainly attempting to work out how they were they were pushing to publish the picture Yeah, I mean, the plan, full. The plan was to publish it. Mm. Um, like, it's a, just a... It's literally a snapshot of what happened. You know, they're, they're, the issues to do with, which, you know, it, that, that is what it was. It was a record of history. It, it spoke for itself, if you want. Um, so that, that, but obviously the guards were aware that we had taken this, this photograph and that, that was public knowledge at this stage. And yeah, we got a, we got, you know, generally people believe Guards are constantly ringing up and telling newspapers what to do and not do. But it doesn't actually work that mm. way. I mean, in fairness, you know. Um, they, they, a battle ensued between the editorial team in the Sunday World and the Gardaí. And the Gardaí were coming in to the building from memory with warrants to seize was we, we believed the photographs, the photography equipment, the computers, everything where we had this image on. Um, we were sort of taking a stance of publish and be damned. We will not be told what to do. We will publish this photograph. And what descended upon the building was sort of certainly a lot of lawyers. And there was a bit of a... Yeah, but there were senior senior guardy came in um, and, you know, they were talking about injuncting the paper. Um, if the, the picture was to be published, um, you know, they, in fact, they they were saying that they have somebody on the end of a phone line and they would go to court. And their position was clear that 
that this, this is going to hamper a murder investigation. This photograph was not being published. And um, yeah, and I mean, it was the first time in the history of this underworld, then what, how many years on the go, well, 45, yeah. um, that there was ever a threat to injunct, despite the history of the Sunday yeah. world and all the various um, brave crime reporting that had gone before this and the people that had been named and, you know, the front pages and certainly some very dramatic photographs that would have been used in the past that maybe you wouldn't use so much nowadays. But despite all that, this is the first time there was a proper, a real incredible threat yeah. that the paper was actually not going to come out. Yeah. So, I mean, I think eventually um, what we did was we pixelated the picture and ran it. Um, it came to a settlement, I think they call it. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that 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 is what we did anyway. And the guards lived with it to the extent that they didn't uh, injunct the paper or stop or attempt to stop it going onto the streets. So whether... Everyone got a bit of a win. But what ended up on the front page was a photograph that was so heavily pixelated that... I would say you could certainly not make out anybody. There was two individuals in it. You could now pixelation for anybody who doesn't know what that is is when you see a computer generated scrambling of a face. But it was it was well it was various different methods tried. There was the white line across the eyes that wasn't acceptable, and I think eventually the entire face was. Blurred. Yeah, so I mean, there's degrees of pixelation. I mean, not to get too technical about it, but, you know, sometimes pictures are really, really heavily blurred that they can't, no matter what, even if they're somebody downloads them and, and zooms in and all of that, that features aren't identifiable. So, you know, that that's the history of that photo. Why is it relevant? Well, it's relevant because the, pe- the newspaper was published on Sunday, the 7th of February 2016 in that heavily pixelated form. And because today, during his evidence, Jonathan Dowdall was led down a garden path in which he said that, well, first of all, he he was suggested that the meeting with Jerry Hutch, where they discussed that Patrick was easily identifiable from that photograph and was clearly Patrick in it, that he said that was on either on the Saturday or the Monday. When Brendan Grahan said to him, the Saturday, he said, oh, no, no, I mean the Sunday or the Monday. Um, and he said, of course, you mean that because it was after the Sunday World was published? He said, yes. And then he basically said that he knew it was Patrick from the picture. Yeah. So, I mean, the defence, obviously, they focus it on this meeting because, as they have said in court, they're, they're accusing Jonathan Dowdle bluntly of lying about this meeting. They're not mincing their words about that. Um, that you know that, And that this is the key evidence that Jonathan Dowdle is bringing. A lot of the other stuff is just background noise from their perspective. So he was asked about this photo. He said he was able to clearly um, identify Patrick Hutch uh, from the photo as being the man in dragging this photo. Um, And uh, he says, I've known Patrick Hutch since he was 11. I did recognize him from the photograph and I knew it was Patrick Hutch when I saw it in the Sunday world. Obviously, the defence instantly say, well, how could, how could you have known? I mean, how could that have been the source of, you know, the source of how you could identify Patrick Hutch? Um, because he's heavily pixelated. He's, ov- uh, you know, obviously, how could you identify that man in drag as Patrick Hutch? Um, because he was wearing women's clothing, the man in drag. But Jonathan Dowdle was insisting that he still recognised him from the Sunday World photo. So that was a kind of a, a moment of, you know, 
I gasped. Like, I just thought, oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean... Is the witness telling a lie? Because well, how in the name of God could you recognise somebody from that photograph with the pixelation? Well, without prior knowledge, it would seem... Well, without prior knowledge that they were in the Regency, that anybody was... Yes. Let me just think, because as he's saying that he said he heard the Regency on the, the, radio. the radio, he knew nothing about it, he didn't know anybody was involved in it. Yes, and then he's... he's and this meeting with Jerry Hutch is the first time that there's an admission yeah, that the, he says that the Hutches are involved in it. Yeah, so that's where he got his information from, um, as well as his own knowledge of, of, of what he claims is who he claims is Patrick Hutch Jr. So, I mean, it's one of those moments... Um, it's a kind of a well. We've I don't know if you've watched uh, followed Harry and Megan, uh, Harry and Megan, which you mm. have I actually. Have I know because yeah, you've been have. tweeting about it. I um, have. I've been watching it. So as a kind so of a, so is something it, different? You know. So is it a as the Queen says, recollections may vary. Um, now human witnesses don't remember things perfectly. I mean that is the way it is, but it's very hard to make the case that that uh, it's, you, or you it's remember fit. something that couldn't have happened. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, look, it's very, it's very difficult to see how anybody without a lot of prior knowledge could have re- recognised Patrick Hutch Jr. from that photo or rec- or presumed that that man in drag was Patrick Hutch Jr. So it was a very, um, it was, he was very combative in the, in the witness box from the start of the day. Um, he was quite emotional, I thought. Did you? Yeah, I thought. You didn't was, see him yesterday. It was a bit like that yesterday. You'd almost sort of. You don't like seeing any human being sort of stressed? No, I mean, and he's clearly under pressure, but he was emotional. Uh, like, you have seen people in the witness box that have been, looked, felt very kind of calm and considered, um, but he wasn't. He was emotional. Um, he was obviously, uh, it felt like he was taking the questions personally. Um, Brendan Grehan is obviously cross-examining him on behalf of Jerry Hutch. You know, barristers aren't, acting personally in the sense that it's just a job for them. But you can see Jonathan Dowdle was was taking it personally. He was getting, feeling that he was being accused of lying, not telling the truth, which he was, of that course, is. being directly accused mm. of. But it started off again, um, you know, when we went in today, that there was... Um, it was two issues. Yeah. Two, two issues uh, brought to the attention of the judges. The first was that in... I was surprised by this. I was yeah. more surprised that you hadn't found this stuff on social media, <laughs> yeah. actually, to be honest with you. I'd say you really let yourself down there. Yeah. Um, the first issue was that uh, Sean Galan, senior counsel, said to Justice Tara Burns that there had been uh, a problem, that filming had been done in the overflow court and that um, this appeared to have been shared on social media. Um, yeah, now, now it hasn't been, I mean, a way... Uh, Look, absolutely, it must have gone on. It's not widely gone on. Um, you know, people maybe don't know that that people see individuals getting photographed as they come out of court, um, but there's an absolute uh, restriction on taking photographs or recordings within the court building. I mean, it's very, very clearly in contempt of court and a criminal offence. So there was a warning about that. that well... It was a very stark warning because (laughs) you wouldn't have wanted to have been sitting there being the one who was doing the the filming. Um, And of course, the overflow court is a separate court, which is has a video screen link into our court where the actual where everything is happening live. Yeah, it's live. And um, it would be policed. I mean, there's a policeman on both on all courts, but obviously somebody must have taken some sneaky video of something or other. 
Um, so Justice Taurus Byrne said she was very surprised to hear any proceedings um, were subject to phone recordings. Uh, there was a clear rules that there's no filming of any sort that can be done in courts within the Irish jurisdiction, that there is not only this court, basically, in all courts, even the district courts, there's notices around the building everywhere saying it's absolutely prohibited for anybody to uh, record themselves or others in any way. Like, actually, somebody uh, tried to take a selfie with me one day outside the court and they were apprehended by the security officer. It's kind of uncomfortable. You're just not allowed, you're allowed, we're allowed to bring our devices into court but we are not allowed to record no. anything you're not allowed to photograph anybody it's just the way it is and maybe members of the public don't realize no. that well, she did say so, as well tower burns they're easy to track down if they're sharing it which is the truth as we've seen with yeah. other cases um, and she asked anybody either a guard or a member of the public that was in the overflow course that if they saw anything of that nature occurring that they were to come in to her in the court, no matter what was going on, and to make her aware of it. Yeah. Um, she said she will not preside over, you know, over anything like this, that anything of this nature occurring in her courtroom, and that the public had been facilitated with seats in the court, but they had to basically keep an eye on one another and themselves not to break the rules. You see, of course, you could be done for contempt of oh, court Oh, absolutely. I mean, she said a criminal, a criminal investigation yeah. could get underway into this by the guards, but... Yeah. Hopefully, whoever did it, it was an accident. They've deleted it, and yeah. that's the end of that. The second ma- matter that was raised was that Dowdall wanted to see, had requested to see a solicitor, and that was another one of those moments. Is he not going to give evidence again? Yeah, it was, and again, it was one of those, uh, like uh, basically, not to get into it too much, but he wanted access to some medical reports, and I think the purpose of it was to correct what he believes the defence was saying about him. And there was a lot of that, yeah. you know, which was not him, uh, which was kind of a, sort of a fight for his reputation, really, on some of the points. Um, so that was beginning, and it looked like it mightn't have gone ahead. But then he did go go ahead, and he was, he was um, they got straight into, um, you know, the issues about... About when he came to the guards to to sort of give his evidence and and this what what we're hearing now this story he has how he sort of initially came you know to say I want to talk to the guards I want to tell the truth and obviously the defence is saying you only did this because you were charged with murder and you wanted that charge dropped and you did a deal you you know you've come forward with these lies about Jerry Hutch in order to save your own skin and what he keeps saying is. That's not true. Um, I didn't. I I I came forward because I wanted to tell the truth. I couldn't come forward earlier because I was in prison in Wheatfield. It wouldn't have been possible. Um, that I didn't look for a deal, and of course I wanted the charge dropped because I'm totally innocent. I've nothing to do with the murder, so why wouldn't I want the charge dropped? So that like that played out over two hours, one way or another. I mean, it's a lot of other detail, but that's the basic trust of it. And at one point during the, you know, this, he was talking about when he was in Wheatfield, when he did get bail. And the other part of the argument, of course, was, of course, was that the defence will state that he got bail because he was willing to talk. Yes. That's the only reason he got bail. He was charged with a gangland murder yeah. and most people wouldn't get bail, but no. he did. So there was a lot of toing and froing about that. And did you get some notes on this? Because Dowdall said that when he got bail, Right. 
yeah. that he was out of prison and the hutches, he's claiming, were all over his house. Yeah, so there was a long de- debate about whether he, he was saying he was put under conditions, he didn't get this easy bail. There was a long debate about about these about this, but basically he he was saying that he didn't have a he didn't have an easy time when he got out on bail. He said the hutches were calling around to his house. There was people in in motorbikes, um, people popping up over the back wall, and yeah. letters put through his post box. He was basically saying that this was all directed by Jerry Hutch, yeah, and that they were obviously suspicious as to why he got bail. Yeah. Now he had previously brought up that he had been to the hospital yeah. when he was in Wheatfield. He was taken out. He had this condition and he was brought to hospital. He was transferred between James's Beaumont and back to James's, And that this in itself had caused suspicion with the Hutches. And yeah. he said that when he was in hospital, a female member uh, associated with Jerry Hutch or with the Hutches called up to see him yeah, and came three times in the day. Yes, because obviously, the, as we said before, sometimes this is a, a pretext on which people speak to the guardie. They say they're in the hospital and um, they're taken from the prison to the hospital, but there's, you know, it's a sort of clandestine way for the guards to speak to them. So he was saying there was somebody coming into the hospital and monitoring effectively that he wasn't talking to the guards. There would have been a prison officer with him outside his any hospital room but that they, that was being checked all the time. And then he said made another extraordinary, I think, uh, allegation at some point when he was, he was being cross-examined. I mean, he basically was being said, well, you know, you had this burning desire to tell the truth, but you only did it five and a half years after the regency, when, after you got trialed for murder or six years, whatever. So, but then he says, um, he, he Jonathan Daddle says there was, at some point, he says he couldn't go to the guards because he didn't feel safe because of um, the issues Mr. Ha- Hutch has with some guards. And he was basically saying, he says directly, I was fearful that if I spoke to the guardie, told him this stuff, this would get back to Mr. Hutch and that he was implying uh, or just saying directly that there was ties between members of Angarda Shiakona and Jerry Hutch and it wasn't safe for him to do so. Um, at a later point, then he, he does say, um, kind of after uh, some social media posts, that he felt he could speak to Mr. Uh, Paul Scott, who was the leading uh, officer from Ballymongarda Station uh, investigating the Regency Hotel murder, that he felt he was a safe person to talk to. So that's another reason he's given for not just coming forward to the Gardaí until the point at which he's charged with murder. And um, that's very, um, you know, that's a. A big claim. Um, obviously, there are, there is background to that in a, in the sense of you know what you know these these these. This isn't the first time those allegations have been made, um, but it like it was it was a, it was another big moment, and it was another moment where Jonathan Dowdle he doesn't re- restrain himself from saying anything now at this point. No, he doesn't. He like you said yesterday about him being a politician. He says what he wants. He gets what he wants to say out, no matter that it has no, like, it, it's not even remotely connected to the question he's been no. asked. And it's not co- And he connected. goes off on these sort yeah, of yeah, rambling yeah, yeah. rants. Which, is, which he is actually directly accused of rambling on at one point by the defence. So, I mean, what he's, it, it's, a, it's interesting because, like, a lot of time when witnesses are brought into the witness box, they're asked about very specific things and they really answer 
in a very, very limited way. I mean, they don't get into anything. But Jonathan Dowdle, like he, he, it feels like he's fighting for his reputation a lot of the time mm. because he constantly comes back and repeats the same points. He constantly says, uh, you know, that I wasn't involved in the murder. Now, he has pled guilty to a degree of involvement in the facilitation of the murder, at least, but he, he puts that kind of to one side and he constantly says, I didn't, I wasn't involved in, in the murder of David Byrne and that he constantly returns to the fact that he's been, in his view, betrayed by the Hutch clan and in some ways set up to take the fall for them um, due to the fact that they met uh, Jonathan Dedal and his father were, were the point of contact with Kevin Murray Flatcap. Um, so he, and that he, he claims that the, they, he wasn't disguised because they wanted, everybody wanted it to know and they were thrown into it. So that, that, that's a big part of what's going on there. He talks about that they actually wanted this, the father to get completely nailed in the Regency Hotel, his father, Patrick Dowdall. Yeah. That he um, says that the actual plan was that the father would meet with Flatcap and... That, that would be caught on CCTV and people would know exactly. it. And that, that, that's an, a way in which, you know, the Hutches, uh, you know, can, 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 you know, can misdirect the, the, both the Gardaí and the Kinnahans, you know. So he's feeling very... Uh, Hard done by, Victimised, yeah, very victimised. In his narrative of the whole thing, he's very, feeling very victimised. You know, and you can see that how the wheels come off with him when he gets charged with this murder. Yeah. I mean, you can actually see, because he talks about it himself, he's in Wheatfield, he feels surrounded by Hutch. He talks yeah. a little bit about him coming into his cell every morning. Um, he's living with him in the confines. Yeah. He's obviously got in his head that he's going to go to the guards. He has said always throughout the his evidence that he always wanted to go to the guards but he was never in a position to do so yeah. but clearly when he's charged with the murder he's no longer going to sort of have this as an aspiration he's planning in his head that he's going to do this and he's living with Hutch yeah but it's questioned by the defence constantly questioned about this desire for truthfulness that he suggests he has and you know he's asked is it is it opportunistic this coming forward and is it in order to get a quid pro quo and a deal but Jonathan Dowdle denies that he he says if I told the truth I never would have been charged with murder so he's they're saying to him why you're just telling this to get off the murder and he's saying no that's not the case he said and when he's pointed out to him that he hasn't always been accurate and truthful with the Gardaí he says I didn't lie to any Gardaí and then he makes a distinction where He's he's at, he's he's basically said you know I you know there was questions I didn't answer and he says not answering a question is not the same as not telling the truth and um, so there, there's 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 a lot of that kind of uh, evasiveness I suppose is what it's described as by the by the the, the defence and um, you know with any he gets into that grievance which is a room was you was used to set you up in a murder that you had nothing to do with he's talking about the regency hotel room mm. and the fact it was booked under his family's name so and he keeps sort of sitting there and going you know why would you take this charge like yeah. of murder charge if you didn't do anything it's like well you were actually charged it's not as if you get an option no. to take it or not there was that Brendan Grahams pointed out that like obviously the state believed there was enough evidence to actually bring a murder charge against you it's not like you were sort of offered this and you decided to fight back for your reputation no and- so I mean they're clearly saying you know at the point at which you're charged 
you then go to the Gardaí and then it becomes an option, then it becomes a real live option about uh, being a witness. And, you know, you're looking for a deal, you know, you're looking for the charge to be dropped. Jonathan Dedal resists that quite a lot, but ultimately he does say in court that he, that is, that he did look for it, but he, he sort of makes a distinction between demanding it and looking for it. And he says, he says at one point, why would I take, take blame for a murder that I, that I wasn't involved in to keep other people happy? Clearly talking about the hutches. And he then, you know, he's asked again about, you know, looking for discharge to be dropped. He said, it's only natural if you're not involved in a murder to try and clear it up. Of course, I didn't want to be charged with a murder. And, but the defense keeps saying, well, you were charged with a murder. Mm. You know, at this point, you were charged. And at the point at which you're charged, then you go and look for a deal. Um, and, you know, yeah, it, it played out a lot of that. Um, but yeah, there was the, 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 the stuff about the, the, you know, there was a lot of discussion about, about why and when he went to the Gardaí. Then there also, there is discussion about um, letters that are sent by his solicitor looking for conditions on which he would become an, become a witness for the state. Um, now, he has a kind of a confused take on that. Obviously, like, as anybody will know who's been to a solicitor, if they send a letter on your behalf, they have to approve it with you. Mm. I mean, that is just... Yeah, they're the, representing you. That is the terms under which they operate. They can't just bash in a letter without your approval. So he, he he ultimately accepts that and says, I'm not saying it's nothing to do with me, but he does keep repeatedly saying, well, I'm not a barrister. You know, I didn't really know what was in that letter or I might have known, but I didn't fully understand it. And, you know... I think he, he says that his he, he eventually concedes that his legal team, as he calls them, were acting in his best interest, that he doesn't understand the legalese of them. He didn't realise they were demands that were being made or, you know, there's he doesn't actually agree that it's demands or that it's conditions. But if that's the language that you barristers yeah. use, there you go. But they were really just trying to protect me in the circumstances I was yes. in. And then the defence says to him, you're just trying to basically, you're trying to put Jerry Hutch in the frame in order to get a, to, in order to be in a position to, to, to have something to offer. Um, the 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 state, and he says that you know I didn't put Jerry Hutch in the frame. Jerry Hutch put himself in the frame, and he's he's saying you know it's it's not. I'm just telling the truth. It's not. It's not. I'm not. I'm not stitching them up. So in detail, a bit they go back through this um, the meetings he has with the Gardaí, and the first one after the letter is written, uh, the first kind of contact that's made is a letter. Yeah. Uh, from the solicitor and that is the, at the end of 2021 and it's six months I think after he's charged with the Regency Hotel. He's now charged with the murder of David Byrne. He's still in Wheatfield Prison. He's in this situation that he describes that he's living with Jared Hutch. He's on the same landing as a lot of the Hutches and he feels very much what he's portraying now is that he was very much under the, the cosh of them I suppose. Yeah. Um. Now, after a series of letters, the first meeting he has with them is after he gets bail. He gets bail in the April, which he insists is not connected with anything to do with him being willing to give evidence that it was a total separate issue. And despite the fact that Brendan Grehan clearly states that, no, it isn't a separate issue. No, I mean, and he's quotes from a solicitor's letter looking for, Jonathan Dowdle's solicitor looking for him to be given bail. So eventually after these letters go back and forth uh, with his solicitor and the police and um, he gets bail in the April and by the May 
he has his first meeting with the police. And at that meeting, Brendan Grahan said, was Sergeant Porrick Boyce, Sergeant O'Toole, uh, D. Garda Connolly. And it's out, out of Dublin Airport. And I think Connolly takes notes at the meeting. Patricia came along to that meeting. Jonathan Dowdall's wife. It wasn't recorded. And that's kind of, you know, look, they... I think the Gardaí said on the witness stand themselves that they were both very nervous, very distressed, very worried. I mean, it is a a big thing for them to have done, to have this meeting. They had spoken before about would they have, uh, could they meet him previous to his bail in hospital and stuff. And and that wasn't a runner because of this scenario he's laid out that the Hutches came to visit him in hospital. Um, But nonetheless, he's insisting that getting the bail was nothing to do with sitting down with the guardie and yeah. telling them what he knew. He's absolutely insistent that it had nothing to do with it. And Brendan Grahan, senior counsel, is insistent that it had, that yeah. it was complete quid pro quo. Anyway, that was the first meeting and they spoke quite openly, it seems, about what he says is all I'm telling you here at the moment is yeah. what they spoke about. So the guardie took notes, but they didn't ask him to sign the notes and verify them. Um, but the notes were taken nonetheless. Um, so then they seem to have, uh, there was a long discussion about what happened next, which is the most, one of the most unusual bits to it. Like obviously what Jonathan Dowdle, the, the information he's given is so dramatic and, and, you know, so, you know, such goes to the core of the case. But then there seems to have been, according to Jonathan Dowdle anyway, a misunderstanding about who would phone who in the aftermath. And um, he seems to be, saying he was under the impression that he'd go away for a week or two maximum, write up the notes. You see, he was told to go away and, yes. and, and sort of put down his thoughts into a structured document, Yeah, you know, and what he had to say into a structured document. So he was to come, they were all, at the end of that first meeting, they were to come back when he had yeah. that done. Yeah. However, it, you know, there, there seems to be then a confusion um, about who was meant to contact who. Um, he very much downplayed it in the box, actually. Jonathan Dowdle was con- repeatedly asked, was he worried, was he concerned? And he constantly says he wasn't. He just didn't thought it was just a misunderstanding. Um, and then, but ultimately, after about a number of weeks, his solicitor was writing to the guards and then they met again at this point. After um, nearly five weeks. Yeah, so they it met. It was the 21st of June when they met again. Yeah. And I think under the cross-examination, he said... A number of things he said. Firstly, it might take him a week to write down these notes. Might take a little bit longer. If he needed any more time, he'd be given it. But, um, you know, Gran was saying to him, well, you know, they hadn't come back to you in five weeks. Like, you were getting a bit anxious. Didn't your solicitor write again to them? And that's what happened. The solicitor wrote again, saying, why haven't you been in contact? And this next meeting in the June was set up. Big gap especially when you're facing a murder charge. And bear in mind, it's coming fast and furious. The the case was due to be heard and was set down for trial in the October. And we're up to the end of June. Yeah, and I mean, it's obviously, he has his concerns about about the murder charge, but also about, you know, this seeping out into the ether about him having contact with the Gardaí, you know. So then there was another uh, meeting ultimately on the 4th of July. Mm. Um where he brought the notes. Um, Now, we got a lot of detail about how those notes were dealt with. Um, You know, there was a discussion about, obviously his wife was there, which I think is not necessarily common, um, but probably the most unusual bit of it was that Jonathan Dowdle um, 
didn't uh, read out his notes. It was his wife who read them out. And he was asked, the guards have said previously, he was asked to sign these notes, but he didn't sign them. He initialed each page. Um, you know, which is, again, the defense were kind of implying that he was he was being reticent, that he wasn't bringing stuff forward, and that he was trying to get this deal uh, about the charge, the murder charge being dropped. So that 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 was the, the kind of the concentration of that bit. And I mean, he wouldn't even agree. Like he was kind of being a little bit, you know, for somebody who's so adamant about some things. Yeah, he's this ability to be very woolly about others and to to kind of not comprehend language and stuff. And he had to be asked on a series number of occasions. I don't even remember at the end of it whether he actually agreed to it. You were asked to sign each page. No, no, I initialed them. You were asked to sign the pages. No, I just initialed them. I just put my initials on them. And eventually he kind of has to come back and goes, but the Garda asked you to sign the page. So yeah. he was obviously refusing, but he wasn't willing to yeah. admit that. So you know they, what I mean? He was kind of making out as if he didn't quite understand what he was getting yeah, at. Yeah, because the defence are getting at very clearly. They're yeah. saying that you weren't willing to commit fully to this to this statement until the, ch- the murder charge were, dro- was, were was dropped. And then John Tededdle again goes back into, to, to, he says, well, of course I wanted the murder dropped, he keeps saying. He says, I, ha- I had said that I wasn't involved in the murder and he did want for the murder charge to be dropped, but he's denying he's kind of being holding back uh, because of that reason. And he just keeps saying, well, it's natural because I wanted the murder charge to be dropped because, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't do it. That's his perspective. And uh, he's asked then, was that, that was the goal of this statement was mm-hmm. to get this murder chop- charge was dropped. And he kind of rejects that language. And then there's discussion, is it his aim? Is it his intention? Um, you know, he, but and Jonathan Dettel just comes back. He won't commit to, those kind of terms, he said, I was of the opinion that when I spoke to the guards, I wouldn't be charged with murder, that the charge would go away because he's explained himself. Yeah. You know, um that 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 it's not a, it's not a deal as such. It's, it's Could he seriously believe that? Well, I don't know. I mean he's he's he, he's saying he's not a lawyer and all that, and you know, he, he yeah, he's So he thinks if he just explains himself that he won't have to go to trial is really what he's saying. He's basically saying that they would have to say, well, no, this guy isn't involved in the murder. But, yeah. you know, the defence, I keep coming back to saying, well, this is, this is, this is, this was your aim. And it was stated by your solicitor in a letter that the charge, the murder charge should be dropped. You know, you were saying there that he was, um, you know, very intent on saying that he wasn't that bothered by them not coming back to him. It was just a big misunderstanding. Yeah. Like, I just have a note there that he, you know, he was being very blasé about, ah, no, we just sort of all got it wrong. We just didn't have yeah. each other's numbers or whatever. But uh, like Brenda Graham asked him at one point, so the, the no contact, you, you were totally disinterested in, 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 were they not totally disinterested in what you had told them? Did you not feel that they were disinterested? Had you no sense of urgency, he says to him, of them getting back to you? No, he didn't, of course, have any sense of urgency. Yeah. And he said, um, so why would I have a sense of urgency? And Branchard Grant said to him, because you're facing life imprisonment. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that is... That is the truth of it. Um, he kind of says... Of course like, he has to have a sense of urgency. Of course. And he co- and of course he says then as well, I couldn't defend myself if I was on a murder charge. Mm. Which is, I mean, 
you know, I'm not fully sure what he what I he think exactly it was because, meant. wasn't he talking about a separate trial? So that was another option that if he didn't, if the, this murder charge wasn't dropped, he'd have a separate trial in that he didn't have to sit in the dock with Jerry Hutch. Yes. That's what I think he was getting yeah. at. That it, the way it was at that point that they were both together and the trial was going to be held with them together along with Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy. The other two have been all but forgotten about, by yeah. the way, who were sitting in the dock as well. Um, facing lesser charges, that he couldn't defend himself while he was in that position. Yeah, I mean, because clearly he could have, you know, even if he was on trial for murder, he can you can take the witness stand. Now, it's not generally advised by your legal teams, but you're perfectly entitled to give testimony if you're being charged with murder. Yeah, um, yeah. We moved on, I suppose, from that to uh, Brendan Graham telling him that he was going to go through these famous tapes and he was going to go through them in detail and there was plenty of stuff for him to ask him about in them be under no illusion that he was going to 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 talk and he just sort of I think opened this with a few bits he also said he's going to play them for him so this is gonna this is where this is gonna go in today's because I wondered today where was he going to go next with it they touched on the main issues but when he's going to go through these tapes they go on for 10 hours yeah and Dowdle, by his own admission, never stops goddamn no, no. talking in them. So there's going to be an awful lot to go through. Now, he asked him about um, the conversation that we actually spoke about on the podcast before, where he makes some comment to Jerry Hutch in the car about a guy called Trevor. Trevor, just as who's related to, we were able to establish it was Trevor Byrne, um, currently in prison on gun yeah, weapons uh, charges. charges. Yeah. And B- Trevor Byrne was at that time in 2016 suspected of murdering Nettie Hutch. Yeah, he was arrested in connection with the murder of Nettie Hutch, but never charged and, you know, never faced any criminal sanction in relation to it. So, I mean, they really, he focused on these... He was living, of course, in a in a mobile home down in Courttown. And, and what, what Dowdall says on the tape is something about rolling a kind of a bomb in under the, yeah. the, the this mobile home and wouldn't that be a way to deal with the, the Trevor lad? Yeah. I know he's down there in court town. So he asked him about that. I don't know whether you have a note Well, I do. Well, I mean, I mean, look, the, the, his defence is really all the same thing. He says, I'm making myself out to be something I'm not. And then, which I think this absolutely, this is undeniably true, this bit. Um, I don't think anybody could have listened to these tapes and thought he wasn't telling the truth here. He says, when there is silence, I just talk more rubbish. (laughs) I was actually (laughs) going to burst out laughing at that. Yeah, I mean, look, we'll all all accept that. No, that was absolutely brilliant. They were his excuses as they were laid out. They were, oh, I have to find those notes because that is the funniest thing that he actually can recognise that in himself. It makes him slightly endearing. He says, uh, yeah, Yeah. he's saying stuff so Hutch would trust him. I talk a lot when I'm nervous or uncomfortable. When there's silence, I just talk more more rubbish. And I repeat myself, he says. Yeah. it's made worse because I was taking tablets at the yeah. time, and that's a fact, he says. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, then Mr. Grattan fo- hones in on this, and he says, these are excuses. I mean, you're talking about, you know, you're talking about bombing somebody, you're talking on another occasion about potentially kidnapping a sort of innocent party connected with one of the Kinnahans, and he's saying, these are excuses, and 
Jonathan Dowdle rejects that. He says, you're saying they're excuses. They are not excuses. It's, it's not an excuse. It's the position I'm in, he says. I had no choice but to go up there. It's not an excuse. I'm, I'm um, you know, I'm, then he goes on about being disgusted with himself, but he, he kind of, he rejects that idea yeah. that these are, these are excuses. And he says, these are my explanations, you know? And Grehan, of course, kicks back to him saying, you're disgusted and ashamed only because you were caught on audio, because you were actually recorded. That's why you are. He, he, he particularly asked him about this Trevor Byrne situation. And it's interesting because this flows through all of Jonathan Dowdall's replies to everything about that's on this audio. Because he says like, oh, but sure, I'd no connection with Trevor Byrne, never had. And sure, nothing happened to him. Sure, that didn't happen about the bomb going in under the, the, um, the, the, the caravan in court yeah. town. So in other words, because something didn't happen, he says, oh, so that's, we all have to kind of understand that yeah. he was talking shite, basically. Yeah, no, he says directly, it's crap talk, yeah. shite talk. He mm. took no steps and nothing happened. And he accepts it's not right. It should never have happened, he says. But it's just, it's just, he, he was, I was, as don't I explained. Say the word again, do you? No, I don't want to say no. Because <laughs> I like, <laughs> Go on, just yeah. once more no, for no. the record. Shite talk, yes. shite talk, shite talk. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, and then he says, it's just how people talk. And then he does a whole couple of, he did a whole little uh, a little story about how people are in, if people are in the pub and they're saying, let's go and rob a bank. And, yeah. you know, then they don't go and rob a bank and it doesn't amount to anything. And Mr. Grehan, who I'd say, never sort of says, not everybody talks like that. I don't think Mr. Grehan has discussed robbing sure. banks while in while in the pub. That was the um, thing about it. He, he just kept kind of going, Ash, you know, you know the way you do this, you know the way you say this, and you're kind yeah. of going, mm, I don't think many of us actually talk about making bombs, kidnapping people. No. And, and well, I mean, certainly Mr. Grehan didn't look like that was his uh, type of conversation. But then he goes back into that. It's, he says it's terrible talk, but it's only talk. I never done that. It was disgusting bravado talk. And he again says there was no actions. I carried out none of that stuff. Yes. Now, Brendan Grehan says to him, it sounds convincing. And then he draws him on to tell us about Uncle Jimmy. Yeah. So this is, this is I mean, it's a, it's a sort of complicated story um, that, 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 you know, that, that, that had been floating around the ether again. Like, yeah, but it's floating around the ether. But four times, Grehan said he returned yeah, to it yeah. on the tapes with Jerry Hutch. He speaks about Uncle Jimmy and what happened with Uncle Jimmy. On the tapes, he says that he shot up Uncle Jimmy's house or he got the house shot up. Yeah. Can't remember what the argument was with Uncle Jimmy. It was something to do with the wedding. Yeah. From, now, not, I'm not getting that from the tapes, but I remember hearing this story. He'd a row with Uncle Jimmy at a wedding or something and... The story that went around was that he got Uncle Jimmy's house shot up, and yeah. So I mean, he, he on the tapes he repeatedly says that he did it, but yeah. then of course he's saying, he's "Oh, saying, but no, that was only talk. I didn't do that. I didn't have anything to do with that. I had nothing to do with Uncle Jimmy's house." Yeah, and he says, "I, you know, I, I've told the guards I'm willing to talk about that, and and you know, nothing has happened. So it's kind of a, I, I have no conviction for that." So then Mr. Grehan goes, well, you know, you were you said it because we can hear it. So was that a lie? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't sort of want to get uh, nailed down to that either, does he? Like No, that? and Grehan actually says to him, you'd never admit it. It's not a lie. It's just that you'd never admit it to Uncle Jimmy's face, what no. you did. And he says, uh, you know, he doesn't agree with that. He just says, I was just trying to make it more, make it more. 
And then he goes, make it more beefy. Yeah, yeah, more beefy, yeah, which was... But then he does kind of say it, it, it's, it was a lie, it was bravado talk. And, uh, you know, it's so, I mean, that that, that was kind of a, a flavor of it. Um, mm-hmm. And then they go back again to, you know, expecting, you know, which they returned to a lot of times, which was, you know, uh, they discussed the 12th, the July the 12th, discussion with the guardy and you know a, a letter that's gone and he's expecting the mr Gren is asking did you expect the murder charge we expecting action on the murder charge to be dropped and jonathan daddle comes back and says i didn't demand any murder charge to be dropped mm. you know so that went on yeah and well i think that Graham comes back at him again and again and in particular with this letter in which uh Paul Scott, who was the senior investigating officer at the time, wrote to a solicitor and says that if you wish for the uh, DPP to consider entering a null prosecu, you need to put that in writing. Yeah. So clearly, yeah. You know, so this I mean, was there, being discussed. Yeah, and there was there was uh, like the, the the solicitor's letters are on record, and the, the mm. solicitor's is is putting on record certain things that Jonathan Dowdle is looking for. Jonathan Dowdle, you know, whenever asked about those those things that are being looked for in the solicitor's letter, he kind of equivocates and sort of says, I, do, I didn't really know about it or I didn't understand it. Uh, but he never gets to the point in saying, oh, well, I didn't ask for that. Because obviously you do, you do instruct your solicitor. And at what point does he describe this attempt he made on his own life? He says he was so low. This was when he's on bail and before he's speaking to the police. Yeah, but this is this is a, 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 in a previous discussion about being on bail and the pressure that he that he was he was under at that stage. Um, he discusses uh, reaching uh, being on being on medication and getting to a point of being in a hopeless state and booking a hotel room. And um, ultimately, the worst did not happen. Mm-hmm. So he he's kind of explained his he's he's tells that story um, in the context of explaining his mental health at the time, and sort of connecting that to, with with what he was saying in the car in the jeep with Jerry Hutch yeah. that he was in a distressed state that he wasn't in his right mind. This is shown by the actions that he took in that, in, or nearly took in that hotel room. And therefore, that that should be the context in which, you know, these discussions about bombing people, etc. Should, should, be, should be understood, you know? You have to imagine that, um, you know, how pressure cooker that Wheatfield prison was from when, look, while, you know, you're taking his evidence, we're, we're taking his evidence, it'll be up to the court to, you know, work out whether he's telling the truth or a lie or whatever. But from looking at that period of time when he's charged with murder, when Jerry Hutch has returned from Spain, they're all in Wheatfield together. He is obviously one way or another in his mind, he says, thinking about going to the cops, yeah. telling the truth, pulling away from the Hutch yeah. sort of association anyway. He's been years since his childhood um, friends with the Hutches, particularly Patsy describes before as an uncle, he realises he's already goosed with the Kinahan organisation because he's charged with the murder of David Byrne. And now he's going to jump yeah, I mean, again. Like, I mean... Yeah, he's, I mean, he's goosed in a couple of ways. If he's you not want. only goosed, but can you imagine that you don't even have the ability, the facility to walk out the door? No. You know, we all got a slight sense of what it's like to be living on top of one another during lockdowns yeah. and that you couldn't really get away and people speak about 
relationships going bad and marriages kind of like people navel gazing afterwards under pressure. And there was a lot of talk of people who were in abusive situations in the beginning of that. Like, how are they going to cope? How are they going to those little things they do during the day? be it collecting the kids from school, getting out for a cup of coffee with somebody, all those things. So to be under that much pressure and to be in that pressure cooker yeah. oh, must no, look, have been horrendous no one way or another. It. And he had no normal life to go back to, of course. He'd been a successful businessman, been a, a you know an up-and-coming politician. I mean, those avenues were now closed to him. I mean, his business has is, is gone bankrupt. Mm. His political career is obviously at an end. Um so yeah, I mean this is this is the context in which in which he obviously decided to go to Gardy. Like it's it's when you listen to him like I mean when he talks about that getting up in the morning and Jerry Hutch sort of appearing at his cell and yeah. at one point he said that he never got the transcripts. Now there was some He seems it, to have not got a copy of the transcripts. A, a paper copy basically. Yeah, paper copy, yeah. But Jerry Hutch had them because his yeah, lawyers had sought them through the courts legally. And Jerry Hutch sort of basically gave them to him to read them. And, you know, he's talking about that he had to read them and that he couldn't say no and that he's... You can see, I'd say, whatever becomes of all this, whatever is accepted as truth or not, you can just feel a certain sympathy for a human being caught like that in that position. The pressure on the mental health must have been yeah you can you can and you know you, it's it's i i mean no matter when i've seen people in court um giving giving testimony when their whole lives are on the line i mean it's very hard not to have a sympathy for them mm. i mean i've even been in courts where people that have committed murders and you look at them and you think god i wouldn't like to be in that position now i wouldn't like to be in Jonathan Dowdle's position but you know it it'll be up to the court um you know, is what he is is what he is saying credible? Is it sort of verifiable beyond all a reasonable doubt? And you know, is his motivation? Is listen? He, he's a very questionable witness from so many reasons, and we were only talking about it coming back. I yeah. mean, he has a really, really serious conviction. Yeah, there he, you know, he hasn't been. No, honest in the past has been caught out lying even on the national airwaves. He's a little bit, possibly being portrayed as a little bit of a fantasist. He's being portrayed as somebody I think who 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 can't accept responsibility for his actions. Yeah. So I mean, even at one point he, you know, it goes back to the to the to the waterboarding and torture, and it's like when it's presented to him again, it's like he's almost surprised because at one point Brendan Griffin says, yeah. you know, because of your passing, what do you mean by I've my past? That, he said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's that yesterday. Stunning. Yeah, so like that's, and you know, I mean, to, to, to have to justify your actions is a very human trait as well. I mean, we all want to do that and, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, like it's gripping stuff, I have to say, um, because he... He's is, a complex personality because there are times you think, if he's there to get across a narrative, he takes every opportunity he can and he seems almost very, um, I'm not going to say plausible, but he, 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 can, he certainly gets across what he wants to say. And for that again, he's there and he's like, he told him today that he didn't know what quid pro quo was. Yeah, which maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't, okay. Yeah. Um, but he sometimes like is as if he doesn't understand a question. Yeah. So he's almost two different. Yeah, characters. and I think that 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 is a part a feature of 
Jonathan Dowdle, uh, not to get too deep on it, but he he was one of these guys who are straddling a couple of lives, mm. a life, a very public life. I mean, you cannot, there is no position in, in Ireland beyond being a politician that is, it is the most public position that you can seek, mm. uh, even more than being a journalist or a TV star. Po- politicians have less, you know, access to privacy than almost anybody and people accept that politicians have to be questioned. So while he was in that position, he was also had a foot in the cramp of the hutches, which are, you know, and as we can hear in this trial, one of the most uh, dangerous criminal organizations in the state. I mean, you know, maybe underestimated at times. So he had a foot in both of these camps. Mm. And another, well, he, he sort of denies a foot up the north, but he certainly had some sort of uh, route into the dissident mm. Republicans. So it's a very, very, not a lot of people live their life like that. Most people are one thing or the other. And he has a kind of a, a bit of both, you know. And it's hard to call, like, because, you know, what you have there in the courtroom as well, of course, is Jerry Hutch sitting there. And, you know, his defence are saying that he's actually only been thrown under the bus because Dowdall wants to save his own skin. Yeah. And if you do have, if 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 it's a case that Dowdall is a total fantasist and he's made up these things and as lied as Brendan Grahan says, like... Butch is facing life imprisonment. Yeah. And while he looks quite relaxed, you have to feel for him yeah. too. Like, I mean, it's oh, an incredibly absolutely. high pressure, I mean, high stakes there. Yeah, I mean, Jerry Hutch is of an age that, that he, he, you know, if he was to go to prison for life, you know, effectively he'll come out, you know... He, you know, people of that age, you know, he's 60, I think, almost. He, he could well die in he prison. He could well die in prison. Could well die he'd in prison. He'd certainly grow old there. Yeah, he certainly, which is, yeah, you know. Which is, he'd have the end of his life. When he comes out, he'd be towards the end of his life, exactly. in a best-case scenario. Mm. So the stakes are huge. Um, but yeah, it's 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 fascinating, I think. It is. I mean, it's like, it's like, oh, I don't know. It's yeah. just, I mean, like, I've been covering trials for years and years and years and I've gone to I don't know how many gangland trials down that special criminal court but I've never ever seen the like of it you go in every morning and you do not know what is going to happen no no and he's yeah it's it's and I think the special criminal court allows it it, there is more freedom to to, to say stuff I think so that's where the judge would be very conscious of a jury and the jury not hearing things that they mm-hmm. may be shouldn't of. So if it flows a bit quicker, you know. Yeah. And the judges have kept it going as well. Well, anyway, a bit of advice to anyone out there listening. If you're going to the court, uh, and it's public court, so you are allowed in, but do not take photographs or video because I just wouldn't be like to be in that position. No, no, as she, as she, just as Tara Burns did say, we can track you down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah. Quite, uh, yeah no. you know, anyway, listen, I think we need coffee so we will leave it there for today. Thanks very much, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. <laughs>